please remain standing as we read the scripture for this morning's sermon. It'll be Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike. Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you this morning. Everybody a little sleepy? Wish you had an extra one hour of sleep. That would be fantastic. Uh, My name is Zach Lee, one of the guys here on staff. Super excited to be with you this morning. Let me open us in a quick word of prayer, and then we will get started on our text. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your help this morning. Just confess that we need you and that we're broken and that we're hurting and that we uh, cannot do what you've asked us to do in this text. But thankfully... Christ will be with us to the end of the age to encourage us and help us do these things. So would you help us? Would you be with us as we uh, work through this text? We thank you for this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip open to Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Last week, we finished our series on the book of Mark. And then in a few weeks, we're going to begin a new series on the book of Ephesians. It should be good. It should be exciting. Ephesians deals with things like predestination and spiritual warfare and uh, the roles of men and women and uh, dividing walls in the church and all kinds of uh, what I like to say are juicy topics, spicy topics, topics that well, you can go at lunch and debate with your friends and family. But before we do that, we're going to do a short kind of five-week series on the doctrine of the church, on the doctrine of the church. It's been called many things. It's called the assembly, the elect, Christ's bride, the temple, holy priesthood, the, a new creation, the people of God, the household of God, the Israel of God, one loaf, the pillar and buttress of truth, I love that one, citizens with the saints, and many more. But we are going to be studying this thing that the Bible refers to as the church. Uh, So we'll be doing about five weeks on that, and then we'll get into Ephesians. The fancy $5 theology term, if you want to impress your date, is ecclesiology, all right? The doctrine of the church is called ecclesiology. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It means assembly or congregation. Sometimes it's used generically for all Christians, but that is the uh, short series that we're going to beginning to uh, we're going to begin today uh, out of Matthew 28. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to the topic of the church, we as Protestants have a tendency sometimes to not value the church as highly as we should. I, I don't mean necessarily here at Parkway. I just mean evangelicalism generally. We've seen the abuses. We've seen what happened in the Middle Ages in Roman Catholicism. And there is a sense in which the pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the other direction. And so we want to lift high and talk about the the church the way the Bible talks about the church. So in the Middle Ages, there is a lot of corruption going on in the church. You have things like the Crusades. By the way, one of those Crusades, they actually just sent an entire group of children. It's called the Children's Crusade. They figured that because the children were innocent that they would go fight against the Muslims and be victorious. How do you think that went? All the kids were killed or kidnapped along the way, all right? Bad theology will kill people. 
And so you had these crusades, you had corruption in the church, you had people buying church offices, what's called simony. Uh, You had sexual impropriety among ministers in the church. You had priests with mistresses, you had popes having kids out of wedlock. Uh, If your dad is a pope, by the way, that's a problem. All right, so in the Roman Catholic Church, they're not allowed to marry if you're a pope or a priest. Uh, You have all this kind of corruption, and the issue that really pushes Martin Luther, the German reformer, over the edge is the abuse of what are called indulgences, indulgences. If you die in Roman Catholicism and you're not a Christian, you go to hell. If you die in Roman Catholicism and you are a Christian, you don't go to heaven right away. You first go to a place called purgatory. Ever heard that term, purgatory? You hear the word purge in the word purgatory. The reason being is you have to burn off and get rid of and be cleansed of all this defilement before you can go to heaven. So if God demands that you be 100% righteous and you're only 90% righteous, you've got to burn off that other 10%. But in the Middle Ages, if you'll give money to the Roman Catholic Church, they can give you a certificate that gets you out of purgatory quicker. It's a pretty good deal. Right? So, like, if your grandmother was a terrible racist and she's going to be in uh, purgatory for 200 years, you can buy an indulgence, and now she only has to be there 100 years. That's like a 50% off get-out-of-hell-free coupon. You could even buy an indulgence for future sins that you would commit. Right? So go buy one right before you go down to Cancun for spring break or something like this. And so what you have is you have all this corruption and stuff going on in the church. And so what happens is the Protestant reformers correctly emphasize that one is saved simply by faith in Christ. Can I get an amen? Not through going through the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. And the reformers held to a very high view of the church. What's happened, though, is several centuries since then, we as evangelicals can sometimes have a tendency to downplay the importance of the church. We kind of think it's just a me and Jesus religion. I'll just get out in the woods and read my Bible, and that's what God wants from me. And so the pendulum, in a sense, has swung too far to the other side. And so today we want to try to correct that. I'll give you a little story. So uh, my wife, Katie, and I took my 19-month-old son to go feed the ducks. All right, He loves animals. He's a little kid. Little kids love animals. And so we took him to the park to feed the ducks. And so I'm holding him, and we're throwing bread on the ground, and these ducks are coming, and they're eating it. And he thinks it's so funny, and he'll say, quack, quack. It's very adorable. And then all of a sudden, these two huge, nasty monster geese come around the corner, okay? Now, don't think like beautiful Disney swan. I mean, these geese are nasty. They have knots on their head like horns, like demon geese, all right? And so as we're feeding these ducks, this male goose, I assume it's a male because it just kind of seemed to be running on testosterone, it comes around the corner, and it looks at me, and it lifts up its wings, and it starts charging after me. Okay? Trying to bite me. It does its little waddle with its wings. And I'm holding a baby. And so I do what any grown man would do in that situation who's mature, and I kicked the goose. All right? Now, don't get mad at me. I'm trying to save my son's life. Okay? So I kick this goose, and I'm like, son, I'm sorry you had to see that. Everything's going to be okay. And the goose goes away, and I think, surely that goose has met its match. He knows. He's going to turn the other beak. He's not going to come back because I've just kicked him. But he comes around the corner again for round two. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And he charges at me again. So this time I step to the side, come around and kind of stomp kick the goose. And it comes around now. And I think, surely, surely this goose knows that I will end it. And so then the goose comes around for a third run. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I don't want to run away and my son know that I'm a coward. But I don't want to be that guy that kills a goose at a public park right? No one wants to be that guy. 
You're sitting in a jail cell, and they're like, what are you in for? And it's like, I was scared of a bird, so I shot it. You know, I don't want to do that. And so we decided just to throw some bread, kind of get it away, and we went and got back in the car to leave. And my wife, you would have thought that I had protected us from a tiger. She was like, you were so brave. It was trying to, trying to bite us, and I'm like, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, Katie, do you know how many people died last year from goose attacks? <laughs> I didn't look it up, but the answer is goose egg, right? Zero. And so to this day, when we go to the park, she'll be a little bit of, so we went to another park and we're feeding the ducks and she's like, are there any geese? And I'm like, babe, hey, it's okay. All right, it's okay. To this day, she'll only buy goose down pillows to send a message, all right, to the other geese. And so what had happened is because of the abuse, the pendulum swung too far in the other direction, all right? Swung too far in the other direction. And so the same thing has happened with the church. We've seen abuses. We've seen in Roman Catholicism how you have to go through a priest other than Jesus. You have to do these kind of things before you can come to Christ. And so what we can do sometimes is have a tendency for the, the pendulum to swing too far in the other direction. So instead, we want to put that pendulum back in the middle. Yes and amen, you're saved by faith in Christ alone. But if you're a true follower of Christ, guess what? You need the church. In fact, you can't even obey Jesus' teachings without the church. When Jesus commands you to submit to elders, how do you do that apart from a church? When the Bible commands you not to give up meeting together in the assembly, how do you do that without a church? When the Bible commands you to take communion, you're going to take that by yourself? That defeats the whole purpose. When the Bible commands you to do church discipline, how are you going to do that without a church? When the Bible commands you to confess your sins one to another, how are you going to do that without some type of godly community? You see, we can't even be obedient to Jesus that we love, through whom alone we are saved, apart from his body, apart from his bride. Let me give you some quotes about the church from some guys in church history. Martin Luther <clears throat> says, when the gospel flourishes in the church, everything flourishes with it. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist church, says, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. St. Cyprian says, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the ark of Noah, then he also may escape who shall be outside the church. Richard Hooker, a theologian from the 1500s, says the church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. You cannot fully love Christ if you do not love his bride. You know why? Because he loves his bride. If you say you're my friend and you say you like me, but you're mean to Katie, you talk bad about Katie, you try to scare her by putting a goose by her or something like this, you and I have problems because she's my bride. We're linked together. So if you love Christ, but you don't love his church, there's something broken about that relationship between you and Christ. Now, before we get into this text, I want to give one more word of introduction. I have heard this passage that we just read aloud. I've heard this passage preached probably literally 100 billion times. Okay, not literally, but 100 billion. I've heard it in chapels, studying theology. I've heard it at missions conferences. I've heard it on evangelism weeks. I've heard this passage preached over and over and over again. And I will tell you this, I have never heard it preached correctly. I'm not saying that it's never been preached correctly. I'm just saying I have never heard it preached correctly. Every single time I've heard this passage preached, I've heard it taught about individuals. Someone will get up and they'll do this passage and they'll say, you go as an individual and you go do these things. This passage is not about individuals. It is about the church corporate. Now, the church corporate has individuals. Individuals in the church do these things. But this is a command to the apostles first, and then by implication to his church, because the church is founded on the apostles. Let me give you a passage. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's not every individual in here goes to all 200 and something nations. Who here has been to all 200 and something nations? Didn't think so. It's not every individual in here has to go baptize somebody. It's as the church goes forward, individuals in the church are involved in evangelism, in missions, in teaching, in Bible study, in prayer, in baptizing, and all these kind of things. But this is a command for the church as a whole. It's a command for the church as a whole. So with that in mind, let's jump into the text. Verse 16, verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now, the 11 disciples, by the way, there's 11 because Judas is no more, but notice that Peter is included among this 11. Though he denied Christ, Christ was merciful. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. After the resurrection, the disciples are going to meet Jesus in Galilee. In verse 7 of this chapter, Jesus tells the women to go meet him in Galilee. Matthew's gospel will end where Matthew's gospel began, in Galilee of the Gentiles. And so they are told to meet Jesus at this mountain in Galilee. Now, we don't know what mountain this is. Mountains are really interesting in theology because they're kind of seen as these places where heaven and earth meet. It's a place where earth juts up into heaven. Even outside of the Bible, So if you think of, for example, uh, Greek mythology, where do the gods reside? They reside on Mount Olympus. So mountains in a lot of religions are seen as kind of these sacred places. They're seen as sacred places in the Bible, and they're typically places where God does something special. So where does Moses come down from when he has these Ten Commandments? The mountain. Jesus, the greater Moses, when he's teaching what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen, that is called the Sermon on the the Mount. Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain, and you get a glimpse of his glory. Uh, God's temple is on Mount Zion, so they're seen as these holy, sacred places, in a sense, where heaven and earth kiss, where heaven and earth meet, and they're told to meet Jesus at a mountain there in Galilee. And then in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Let's talk about this. These are Jews. Jews are strictly, rigidly monotheistic, but what are they doing here? They're worshiping Jesus. Jesus is no mere prophet. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. In relation to the Father, he is Son. In relation to God, he is Him. And so here you see Jesus being worshiped and exalted and lifted high. In Greek, the text literally just says, and they worshiped. We know that it's Jesus, not only from the context, but if you look up at verse 9, the women grab Jesus' feet and they worship Him. So I want you to see six things about the church throughout this sermon, by the way. I'm going to give you two now, and we'll do the other four in a second. I want you to see six things. Write these down, put them on your phone, get them tattooed on your forehead, whatever you need. These are important, and you need to remember these. What what are we supposed to learn about the purpose of the church from this passage? The first one is this. The church exists to worship Jesus. The church exists to worship Jesus. We want to love Jesus and pray to Jesus and worship Jesus and sing to Jesus and lift high the name of Jesus. That's why we are called Christians, little Christs. That's what we're about. But look at the end of verse 17 here. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We don't know who this some are that are doubting. Scholars are split on this. Some think that that some is a reference to some of the disciples. So the 11 disciples are worshiping, and some of them have more faith, whereas others, maybe like doubting Thomas, don't have as much faith. Others, though, think that those who are doubting are not the disciples themselves or the apostles themselves, but rather other people that followed Jesus. According to Paul, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. 
In verse 7, Jesus tells the women to meet him in Galilee as well. So it might be people other than the apostles. But here's the second thing you need to see about the church. Number one, the church exists to worship Jesus. Number two, the church is imperfect. The church is imperfect. You have true worship going on here with people who do want to follow Jesus, but you also have people with doubt. You also have people with doubt. Let me just say this up front. Jesus will never betray you. He is perfect. His bride will sometimes hurt you. The church is imperfect. By the way, all of them are. Pick which imperfect body you want to go to. I'm telling you this now because the church is made up of people. The church is perfect, and then you add people, and then everything gets messed up, right? Because we're broken and we're sinful. So I'm just telling you now, there are times the church will let you down. There are times we at Parkway will let you down. So if you're a visitor or if you're a new member here, there are times we'll let you down. I'm telling you this now in case you come to me in a year and say, Zach, I feel like somebody let me down. I will say, duh, I told you that. But so will every other church. The church is imperfect. You see worship here, but you also see doubt and failure. Also, I want to mention this. If you're someone like me who struggles with doubt, struggles with anxiety, struggles with fear, you can still be a part of Team Jesus. You can still love and worship and trust Jesus, though you have but a mustard seed of faith. You don't have to have the whole tree. You can be like the guy that cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disobedience is. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disobedience is. To say it the way Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, says, weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. God does not demand that you have 100% faith. Our faith is always imperfect. You need to have 1% of faith and have that 1% of faith be in Jesus. A lost person has 0% faith. So they're worshiping, but some doubt. Number one, we worship Jesus. Number two, the church is imperfect. There's doubts and sins and failures in the church. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so uh, my son, Judah, who I love very much, he is 19 months old. He's getting close to becoming two. What I've been told are terrible twos, and then other people say there's terrible threes, and then ferocious fours, and these kind of things. So apparently just raising kids is difficult. But he's at this age where he's starting to test us, right? He's always been broken and sinful biblically, but he's starting to test us, and we have a certain level of authority over him. So the big thing he knows he's not supposed to do, if he breaks any other command, the command he's not supposed to break is he is not supposed to touch the electrical socket. We've had that conversation a thousand times. And so what he'll do now is he will agree with you that he shouldn't touch it while he touches it. So he will go up to it and he'll go, no, and he's touching it. He's basically saying, I shouldn't be doing this. You and I agree. This is something I'm not supposed to do. And he's going, no, as he's just touching it, putting his finger in there. And he has to be reproved. Another thing he'll do is we're trying to teach him not to hit, right? So he'll go up to like a little girl on the playground and just hit her. And we're trying to teach him not to do that. Sometimes he does it out of rebellion. Sometimes he does it just because he is drunk with joy. So Katie was playing with him and tickling him and rolling on the floor. And so he just pops up and slaps her right in the face. And he got in trouble, all right? Now, as we shepherd him and as we shape him, we have a certain level of authority over him. But we do not have absolute authority. I can't tell him to go murder someone. I can't tell him to sin. I can't tell him to not worship God. My authority over him eventually will hit a ceiling. The authority of Jesus has no ceiling. In this text, it says not only that all authority is given to him, but on heaven and on earth. He is absolutely sovereign. He demands submission. He demands obedience. He demands for you to fall on your face and bow your knee and call him Lord. 
Not only because he's the creator. He is the creator. The Bible says everything was made through him and for him, talking about Jesus. God creates through his word. Jesus is the word of God. But in this text specifically, this authority that the text is talking about is because of his resurrection. Because of his resurrection. At the resurrection, God the Father justifies God the Son. At the resurrection, the Father vindicates the Son. There are a lot of dead so-called messiahs, but none of them get out of the grave. Only Jesus, because he's the true Messiah. And so the kind of authority the text is talking about here is an authority that God has given him through his resurrection as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that everything should bow to Jesus. He is the sovereign. He is not just Lord of your life. He's Lord of your business. He's Lord of your health. He's Lord of your money. He's Lord of your marriage. He's Lord of politics. He's Lord of turtles. I don't know, whatever it is, throw in anything. He's king over all of it, all right? All of it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. I think we're gonna throw it on the screen for you. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. You ever wondered why Jesus calls himself a son of man? A lot of times it's a reference here to Daniel 7. I saw one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Again, he is no mere prophet. He is no mere good moral teacher. He is the sovereign of the universe. He gets to tell us what to do because he's in charge. But it's my life. I'll do what I want. It's not your life. It's God's life. It's my body. I'll do what I want with my body. It's not your body. It's God's body. And if you're married, it's also your spouse's body. You're like third in line for your body. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Christ rules and reigns. Verse 19 through 20a. Go, therefore, let's pause real quick. What is the therefore, therefore? The therefore is therefore to tell us because Christ is in charge, that's why we're to go do what he's about to tell us. Because all authority has been given to him, therefore, in light of that, we should go do what he's about to say. And here's what he's about to say. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Okay. Can I rant for a second and get on my soapbox and yell and go crazy? Uh, Whether or not I have your permission, I'm probably going to do it anyway. Okay. Here's something I'm really passionate about. I think that the evangelical church generally, again, not, not here at Parkway. I'm not throwing stones at anybody in particular. I think the evangelical church generally, for probably about the last hundred years, has fundamentally misinterpreted this passage we just read. Most churches would read the passage this way. Go therefore into all nations, making shallow converts, and then just leaving them there. That's how most churches do it. To make shallow converts of all nations. That is not the command in this passage. There is one strong imperative, one main verb in this passage. Do you know what it is? It's make disciples. The participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, those all modify making disciples. That's the thrust. Let me say it stronger. If I go next door and I share the gospel with my neighbor and they repent and trust in Christ and I walk back to my house house patting myself on the back and that's where it stops, I have failed in the mission that Jesus has given to the church. The mission Jesus has given to the church is to make disciples. 
not to make half-baked converts. It is to make disciples. It is a long, slow, painful process. Now, let me be clear. We do want to make converts. You can't make a disciple without someone being converted. They don't make very good disciples of Jesus that way. Yes and amen to missions. Yes and amen to evangelism. Yes and amen to conversion. But that's not where the story stops. The goal is not just numbers. God's not just a God of numbers like that. The devil has more disciples than Jesus. The road is wide that leads to destruction, and there are many on it, whereas the road is narrow that leads to life, and few will find it. God is about quality first, quantity second. Quality first, quantity as well, but quality first, quantity second. That is what God wants. That's what he desires. And we as Westerners, we as Americans, we as people that sometimes can be pragmatic have had a tendency to say, well, at least let's get them in the door. At least let's get them saved. Yes and amen to getting people saved. But what is the command from the lips of Jesus himself in this command? It is to make disciples. It is a longer process than that. It is a longer process than that. That is what we are called to do. That is our mission. What is the mission statement of Parkway? Do you know? It's to glorify God by making disciples. Do you know where we get that? The Bible, right? This passage. That is our goal is to make disciples. Yes, we want converts. You can't make a disciple without conversion, but it cannot stop there. There must be discipleship. There must be discipleship. The mission of the church primarily is not politics. If you feel called to be involved in politics, go do it. Yes and amen. I want Christians involved where people are making big decisions. But the mission of the church is to make disciples. The mission of the church is not primarily social work or social justice. If you want to be involved in that, go do it. Yes and amen. Part of what the church does is care for the poor. But the main goal of the church is to make disciples. The main goal of the church is not parachurch ministry. If you want to be involved in parachurch ministry, go do it. Yes and amen, those things are good. They're part of what the church does, but the main focus of what the church does is discipleship. We make disciples. Uh, Pretend for a second that I'm uh, in the army and that I'm an army recruiter. And I have a really great week, and I sign up 100 people for the army. I share the good news of the army. I say, join the army, and uh, they'll pay for your college, and they'll do all these good things, and I sign up 100 people. And then my commanding officer says, hey, are those uh, guys you signed up, are those guys headed off to boot camp? And I say, what do you mean boot camp? They're in the army. I got them signed up. They're in. They're officially soldiers of the United States Army. He's going to say, what is wrong with you? We don't make soldiers just to make soldiers. We make soldiers to send them off to war to fight what is evil. There's a, there's a greater purpose. It's the same way in Christ's church. We make converts for the purpose of glorifying God as they make more disciples. We have a bigger goal of pushing back what is evil in the world. And the command in this text is to make disciples. We're given three ways that we do that. All right, let's look at the text. Make disciples how? The first way is by going. That word go comes before that, but it's linked to the idea of making disciples. This is why we do missions and evangelism. We, like the church in Acts, like the apostles, we want to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God has a heart that all nations would worship and love and serve him. Amen? There is a system of theology which sees God as primarily concerned with the nation of Israel. And the nations, or the Gentiles, or the church, are only kind of seen as a little subset of his plan. Kind of like a parenthesis in this sentence that God would speak. 
So if God were to speak a sentence, he'd say, Israel, 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 parentheses, the church, Israel, 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 okay? There's a whole system of theology that is based on God primarily dealing with Israel. The nations are kind of seen as this parentheses in God's plan, and then he's back to Israel. I personally think that that system is completely backwards. This is why Genesis does not start with Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham. It starts with Genesis 1 and God being the God of the whole world of all nations, This is why at the end of the book of Revelation, there are people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation worshiping God. God's plan is to redeem all nations, all nations, all nations. The parentheses is Israel. That's who God is going to use to send a Messiah into the world. And then he's back to all nations, all nations, all nations. God has a heart to be praised in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. That is the heart of God. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that racism is so evil is because it tries to seek and keep Abraham's seed from being a blessing to all nations. Second thing we're to do, we are to baptize. Go therefore to all nations, make disciples to baptize them. If you have walked out in our foyer, which I guarantee you have, or you couldn't have gotten in here unless you somehow like teleported or something, you will see that we have our baptistry out there. And we leave the top off of it now so that people can actually see that it's a baptistry. We want it to teach as people walk by. We had a lot of people coming up to us and saying, who's buried there? And so we wanted to have to explain what baptism is, and so we left that off. And so if you've looked at that baptistry, you'll realize that it is shaped like a coffin. It's shaped like a coffin. That's not because we're morbid, all right? That's not like we were building this, this, you know, this sanctuary around Halloween time, and we thought that would be a cool decoration. We are teaching through the shape of that baptistry. When someone is baptized, what they're going through is a mock funeral. That's what we're doing. We're doing a mock funeral. What would it look like to die, be raised, and stand before judgment? Well, we're doing that beforehand in baptism. We're putting them in this coffin, and we're saying that you have died because of your faith in Christ. You have died to your old life. You have died to your sinful self, and you have gone down into the ground, down into the waters of judgment like in the time of Noah. But we don't just leave them there and like send them to glory, like bubbles are coming up and you're holding them down. We pull them up. Why? Because of faith in Christ Because he has been resurrected, one day they will be resurrected as well. They will be resurrected as well. So we're even trying to teach through baptism. How do you you know that when you die, the judgment for you will go favorably? Answer, because you've already been judged in your baptism. You've already gone through judgment and God has lifted you up. He has shown himself to be faithful. You are justified because he has justified Christ through the resurrection. And it says here that we are baptized into the name That name, by the way, in Greek is singular. You've got a kind of a Trinitarian reference here. Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You take on the name of the Trinitarian God of the Bible. So when Katie and I got married, she took my last name. What is she saying in doing so? She's saying, I'm wrapped up with you. My identity is linked to yours. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our name is identified with his We are wrapped up and linked up with him. We're to baptize. We're to do this initiation rite into the people of God for someone who's put their faith in Jesus. And then third, go therefore and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Look at this last part. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching is this last part of making disciples. By the way, which of these three things takes the longest to do? Going, baptizing, or teaching? What is it? Teaching. Baptism takes, what, like 10 seconds? 
Going takes the length of a plane ride or how long it takes for you to go next door and talk to your neighbor or whatever, but teaching is a lifelong deal. All that Jesus has commanded includes not only what he said personally in the Gospels, but because the Bible is his word, all of the Bible. That's a big command. Why do we have theological equipping class in the morning? Why do we do expository sermons where we walk line by line through the Bible? Why do we have community groups where people confess their sins and pray and read the Bible together? And here's why. Because we're trying to teach to observe all that Christ has commanded. Our job at Parkway is to make everyone here theological Navy SEALs, all right, or theological Green Berets or Marsoc Marines or something, where we can drop you anywhere in the world and you are deadly to the enemy. We can drop you in South America, we can drop you in Africa, we can drop you in Asia, we can drop you at your job, we can drop you in your neighborhood, and guess what you'll do? You'll witness to people, you'll start Bible studies, you'll push back what's evil, you'll feed the poor, you'll care for others. That is our goal, is to make you these things, full-fledged disciples of Christ, full-fledged disciples of Christ. Now, I want to give you the other four points we see in this text of what a church is to do. Number one is is to worship Jesus. Number two, we need to know the church is imperfect. Number three, the church is to do missions and evangelism. This is why we do things like the Romania mission trip. This is why we encourage you to invite people into your community group in your neighborhood and these kind of things. We do missions and evangelism. The church has an upward, an outward, and an inward focus. Upward in that we worship God. Outward in that we reach the lost inward and that we disciple the saved. And so number three here is that the church is to do missions and evangelism. Number four, the church is to correctly practice the sacraments. The church is to correctly practice the sacraments. We are to do baptism and elsewhere we are commanded to do communion. If you do not do those things, you might be a Christian organization, which is good. Yes and amen, but you're not a church. You're not a church. Number five, the church is to teach the Bible. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then lastly, number six, the church holds to correct doctrine. The church is orthodox. Orthodox means you hold to correct worship. Doxa, correct doctrine. There are buildings within a few miles of here where people gather and they read out of a Bible with uh, modified things and later books and stuff added. And they do sacraments, but not like we do sacraments. And they meet and it looks like they are having church but they're not orthodox. They don't worship the same God we worship. They're not a church. They're what Revelation would call a synagogue of Satan. To be a church, you must be orthodox. You must have correct belief. You must have correct belief. Now let's look at the end of verse 20, the last part of verse 20. 20b, if you will. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus just gave us a pretty big command, right? Go to all 7 billion people in the world and make them submit to me. That's a big charge. If anybody in here's ever done marketing, it's very hard to hit a certain demographic, much less 7 billion people. So he ends by giving this word of encouragement, this word of affirmation. Hey, I've just told you to do something huge, but listen, I'm gonna do it. I will be with you. Christ builds Christ's church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Where is uh, Greek mythology today? Anybody in here know anybody that practices Greek mythology? No, you know why? It died out. Anybody in here know anybody that's uh, worshipped at the cult of Mithras? Kind of this famous Roman soldier religion. You know why? It's died out. But here we are, 2,000 years later, in McKinney, Texas. Think about how far away that is from Jerusalem. And we're worshipping Jesus. 
How did a Jewish God with a Jewish Messiah get to McKinney, Texas? And the answer is because Christ has promised to be with his church. You can kill us, you can imprison us, you can burn our books, you can fire us, you can try to stamp us out, yet here we are. Yet here we are. I love that this great commandment that Jesus gives us, this great commission, is sandwiched in between two things. It's sandwiched in between all authority has been given to me and I'll be with you always. His authority is how we can do it and we have the encouragement that he will be doing it through us as we go. The church exists to worship Jesus. The church is imperfect. We do missions and evangelism. We practice the sacraments. We teach the Bible and we hold the correct doctrine. That's the purpose of the church. Now, I want to end by talking a little bit about my own conversion. I want to share my story with you. And the reason I want to share that with you is because God used the church specifically to reach me when I was in high school. So I grew up going to church pretty much every Sunday. Uh, I got baptized when I was 11, but I was not a Christian. All right, My heart had not become regenerate. I had not been born again. My affections were not foremost on Christ. I had simply gone through a ritual. And so when I was in high school... Uh, I was very perfectionistic. So my salvation is very much kind of like a Martin Luther-esque way in that I was a perfectionist. I really thought that you could earn and merit the favor of God. I wouldn't curse or drink or sleep around or do any of these kind of things because I thought if I could do this good enough, God would finally love me. I even remember picking up trash off the street because I thought God would be mad at me if I didn't do it. And so I was this kid in high school. I had been wounded. My parents went through a pretty tough divorce, and I had been kind of wounded by that. I was kind of a kid that was kind of mad at the world. My plan was to join the Marine Corps after uh, high school and uh, go do that. And then one summer, I was mowing lawns, which if you know anything about me, I am extremely allergic to grass. So anytime I'd mow a lawn, I'm like, just hacking stuff up, and, and all this stuff's coming out. I know that that audio that I just said, Tim is going to use and capture and play it back to us. Just let me step back from my story for a second. Anytime one of us messes up in something we say, as Tim's doing the audio recording, he keeps it so he can play it back and embarrass us later. Okay, back into story. So, so I'm hacking and sneezing and I'm mowing these lawns and then across the street moves in a couple that's part of a community group. And what they do is they just start being kind to me. They just start being gracious to me. Had that couple... So I was a punk high school kid at this time. This couple, they were grandparents. Had they just come up to me and given me a tract, I would have never talked to them again. Had they just come up to me and tried to share the whole gospel the very first time they met me, I would have never talked to them again. But what they did is they lived missionally towards me. They cared for me. They invited me over for a game night. They said, hey, our community group is getting together. We're having a little game night. Do you want to just come play games? And I said, yeah, I'll come play games. So I went and played games at their house. And then they said, hey, we're going to go to dinner. Would you like to go to dinner? And I said, sure. And they took me to dinner, and they paid for it, which is awesome. Later on, when I was a waiter at a restaurant, they came in, and they tipped me $100. For Christmas, they bought me a jacket. They, They were just continually being gracious and kind to me. And then they said, hey, you want to go to church with us? And I said, nope. So they waited a month, kept being kind to me. Came back a month later, hey, you want to come check out a service with us? Nope, I'm good. I've got my own church. And then about the third time they asked me, I was like, fine, I'll go to your church. And so I went with them to church. And it was the first time that I had ever heard the message of grace. That's what was new to me. I knew about Christ dying on the cross. I knew about his resurrection. I knew about these kind of things. What was new to me is the idea that I could do nothing to earn the favor of God, but by simply falling down at his feet, he would give me mercy. That I could be washed clean and forgiven. And God opened my heart. And all of a sudden, something was different. 
I would go to these worship services and they'd have like four of the same ones on the weekend and I would go to all four of them because I just couldn't get enough. And as we were singing songs about God's mercy and singing songs about Christ's atonement on the cross, I was weeping because I believed it finally. He didn't just die generally, he died for me. And then after that service, I would go home, turn on worship music, sit in my room and cry like a weirdo. And I'm like, what is happening to me? And here's what was happening. Conversion. Conversion. My heart of stone was being taken out and I was being given a heart of flesh. And all of a sudden, I loved Christ. Before, I would have said I loved Christ, but I really just feared him because he could damn me. Whereas now I had a love for Christ. So started, uh, felt a calling to ministry, started going to school to train for ministry. After college, took my first pastorate at a little church up near Paris, Texas, if you know where that is. Very sweet church, very sweet people. Four months into that pastorate, I went through a debilitating depression. Uh, I had also, by the way, gone back from my honeymoon to that church. So I'm newly married, new pastor of this church. Four months in, I just, depression hits me. Katie walks into my office where I'm supposed to be studying and I'm laying in the fetal position, bawling my eyes out. And she's like, what is going on? And I have no idea. I wasn't eating. I was losing weight. We actually had to buy power bars so in case I was even a little bit hungry, I could try to get as much nutrition as possible. I was having trouble getting out of bed. Constant thoughts of suicide. Constant thoughts of shooting myself in the head. I would wake up from demonic nightmares in the middle of the night. I'd wake up sweaty and feeling spiritually attacked. I had a dream where the devil was yelling condemnations in my face. How about that? And so after doing this for a while, I eventually had to resign at my first pastorate. I had to resign because it was just too much. I was getting crushed. And so I resigned from that church, moved back to the Dallas area, took a job doing sales just because I needed something to pay the bills. And I met a guy who led a community group. And he said, hey, I want you to know you're not the only one that struggles with anxiety and depression and fear and thoughts of suicide. He said, I was like that. He said, I used to have dreams. I was cursing God out. I used to be on antidepressants. I know what that's like. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come over to my house once a week and we're gonna listen to worship music and I'm gonna pray for you. And I thought, man, that seems super weird. I don't wanna do that. But I'll try it because it's better than shooting myself. So I'd go over to his house and he would turn on worship music And he would just let it play. And I would sit there and just cry. And he would come and he would pray for me and I would leave. Come back the next week, we'd listen to worship. He would pray for me and I would leave. And each time I would leave, I didn't have more answers to my questions. I I couldn't figure out all the things I was trying to figure out. It was like Vietnam was going on in my head. But every time I left, I felt a little bit more like God loved me. A little bit more like God loved me. And after doing that for a year, I didn't want to kill myself anymore. And that's a win! Put that under the wind column, all right? And then at my previous church, the guy that hired me said, hey, are you ready to do ministry again? And I said, I don't know. I might still jump off a bridge. And he said, well, you're honest, so that shows that you have the spirit, so come on. And I was like, okay. The reason I tell you this story is because both in my salvation and in my sanctification, God has used his body, the church, to help me. He has used his people to reach out, to live missionally, to just befriend me first, not try to convert me, but to try to disciple me. And in my sanctification, he's used someone else that's gone through those same struggles to help minister and encourage me when I'm struggling with doubt, fear, anxiety, depression, and these kind of things. God uses his church. And that's the church, that's the kind of church I want us to be. There is a kid right now in high school somewhere in McKinney who's mad at the world, and my hope is that eventually someone would love on him and encourage him and he would hear the gospel and God would save him. Because I've seen it done. I've seen it done. We as a church are right on the cusp 
of just God doing something amazing. I don't know if you've felt this or if you've seen it. A lot of changes were made in the past, but they were made for two reasons. They weren't just made to best reach McKinney, although we do want to do that. They were also made to best disciple our current congregation. The switch, for example, from Sunday school to community groups is because that's what's best for our current people and what's best for reaching McKinney. The switch in music and some of these other things are what's best for our current people and what's reaching. It's both. It's both. And because we're right on the cusp of something great, the enemy wants to work. That's what he does. The enemy hates unity. He hates Christ's bride because he hates Christ. And so watch out for the enemy just trying to work disunity, trying to work deception. Watch out for him whispering in your ear, they don't really care about you. They don't really love you. They don't care about your preferences. Go to another church. Maybe one of the elders doesn't really care about it. Maybe the staff doesn't care about it. Maybe you should do Watch out for that. That's how the enemy works. He's subtle. He's crafty. He's smart. He's very evil, but he's very smart. Watch out for that desire that he has to sow seeds of division. Fight against that so that we can be the kind of church that reaches out to pagan, mad-at-the-world, you know, 17-year-old boys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for giving us your spirit uh, by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so uh, I just ask right now that you would be with our little church, and I pray that you would encourage everyone in here, anybody that's struggling with anything right now, it would just melt away in the f- by the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. So what do we have to fear if Christ is the greatest authority? And so I pray that you would encourage, I pray that you would protect us, I pray that you would uh, continue to uh, have us reach out to people. I pray that you would bring tons of lost people to our church. I pray that you would bring people that are just broken and perverted and thieves and wicked businessmen and prostitutes and all these kind of things that they might learn the mercy and love and grace of Christ. I thank you for my conversion. I thank you that you used your body to do so, that you used grandparents at this point when I was in high school to to show me the love of Christ. I thank you for that. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.